I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. Bravado or vulnerability? Doggedness or self-awareness? intimidation or humility. Most of us can visualize these terms playing out in our past and current places of employment, with our past and current leaders, or even within ourselves. On one side of the debate, some leaders believe that being smart, calculating, and competitive doesn't equate to expressing any vulnerability, better yet crying. Leaders should convey a professional demeanor because anything else would be understood as being too soft in the public, with staff, or with stakeholders. Don't ever let them see you sweat, they say. Keep a professional mask and only show the best parts of who you are, they say. On the other side of the debate, some leaders strive to become more aware of their own intentions and their impact on others. Leaders believe that by taking steps towards ownership of their emotions, creating environments for growth and learning, they will build high-performing and innovative teams, mitigate destructive cultures, and increase retention. What side are you on? Today's episode of Leadership Uncensored, what is the prevailing thinking about leaders who cry openly? Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Don. Hey, how are you, Don? I am super. I am super, super, and hope you all are well and and being safe out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Well, my guests today are two people that um, I have known, uh, one person I've known for a very long time, and, and one person that I have recently started to develop a good relationship with and a friendship with, and I'm just so happy that both of you are here with me today. Our two guests are Dr. Irving Pedro Cohen, who is the Vice President of Operations for Florida First Coast YMCA, and Dr. Sarah Martin, Vice President of Health Solutions for My Sidewalk. Um, both of you have just really amazing backgrounds. Um, Dr. Cohen, share with the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, first and foremost, allow me to say thank you for inviting me and allowing me to be a part of your podcast. Um, As you could probably imagine, uh, when I got your message the other day asking me that I want to be a participant, I was I was absolutely flown away, and you know I wasn't going to miss an opportunity to um, to sit in and and share my thoughts. Um, But that being said, my name is Dr. Irvin Pedro Cohen. For your listeners, I am the vice president of operations. Before this First Coast YMCA, we are probably one of the largest YMCAs um, in the country. And, you know, I oversee, you know, two of their operations here in Jacksonville, along with some other operational duties uh, as it relates to the organization. And, you know, my bones come, you know, in terms of how I got to this point really comes with serving urban communities. That's sort of where I built my um, my reputation. I live, eat and breathe 
how do we move humanity forward in that space, particularly in the space around the education, healthcare, and economic development for our challenged communities. Uh, I've been with the Y now for six years, but you and I met when I was the executive director for the Newtown Success Zone, a community-based program where our goal was to take kids from as early as prenatal and move them on to a career of either graduating from high school, well, primarily graduating from high school or going off to college, the military, or some other form of post-secondary training. And so my, all the things I learned in the success zone kind of has informed my practice of today. And so to, today, I, I still do those very same things in the space of the YMCA. And again, Don, thank you for having me here to be able to tell my story and sort of you know inform some of your listeners on how I move humanity from A to B. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That was a great introduction. Dr. Martin. Oh, your intro was so succinct. I like literally in, in kind of preparing for this, like wrote my entire life story. So I, I feel like I'm I'm going to like truncate it because I bet a lot's going to come up. I feel like, uh, you know, anyone can kind of Google my sidewalk. But uh, so my sidewalk is a data storytelling company. Uh, we are a technology startup. And that is very different than where I got my professional start. So my background, uh, actually, the, when I think about, like, where did my leadership journey start? I think about my earliest, earliest years. So um, I am the daughter of a grocery store clerk and a landscaper who is now a wedding singer. Uh, I'm from the Central Valley of California, which, uh, if if you're not familiar with it, if it were its own state, would be the second sickest state in the union. Um, and wow. I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually from a few generations of grocery store workers. Um, so I used to spend every after school, like perched, uh, so it was an Albertsons, which is very big. So it's like, uh, perched above the grocery store. So there are offices above the grocery store with a one-way window, right? So the people can't see you, but you can see them. So I would spend hours watching people and their mannerisms and their secrets and what they bought and how rich people acted and how poor people acted. And I like internalized so much of that of like, if I want to be something different than what I've born, been born into, there is a certain way you act and there's a certain way you carry yourself. And I would like emulate that. I had a very vivid imagination. Uh, my favorite podcast besides this one is actually called groceries. It's about groceries. So I like highly recommend it. It's a little cross promotion for groceries. Um, but I, like I was thinking, okay, I knew how to dodge debt collectors at a very young age. Like I knew what time the phone rang to be able to say like my parents are home. Um, I didn't realize that we didn't have much, I think until later in life, I looked back and was just like, Oh, like, yeah, that just notices on the door and whatnot, you know? Uh, so my parents didn't go to college. Nobody in my family went to college. My mom is Mexican. My dad is white. Uh, so I have this like real mishmash, very California story of different, uh, folks coming together. Uh, so nobody went to college. Um, I applied to one college because I didn't know how college worked. I applied to an acting school in, on the East coast and got in and then realized, Hey, we're poor there. I don't, I can't go here. Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I didn't know California, the best public universities in the country. And like, I didn't apply to one university of California school. Like I was like in my head, I was it's so romantic and I was so like tunnel visioned on this. Um, so I ended up in my hometown at the state school 
where I, you know, got up early, worked at coffee, went to school, did the after class job, did the bartending chefs and the acting and all that. I had a baby very early. And uh, when he was born, I was battling some pretty rough uh, postpartum depression and I really was saved by politics. So not a lot of people say that. Uh, but I started doing campaign volunteering just to get out of the house uh, with a baby on my hip. And uh, that kind of turned into actual job uh, doing canvassing and script writing and speech writing for local campaigns. I uh, had a knack for words and telling people what they wanted to hear, probably from my grocery store perched days. Um, but it really was this idea that like someone believed I was good at that. And I loved the, I loved that atmosphere uh, that turned into policy school. I applied to 10 public policy schools for graduate school, got rejected from eight of them instantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, for some reason, uh, you know, uh, God was on my side and I got into UC Berkeley, which is ranked number one for policy analysis. Somebody believed in me and I had a really great career there with a public policy degree, uh, an epidemiology degree, and eventually a PhD in policy and economics. Probably my whole journey is one of like, oh, that's not a, that's not a dual degree. Like you don't do a dual degree in policy and epidemiology. Well, you do now. Like in, in kind of that, uh, you know, the, the hustle, as you know, like um, hustling for subsidized childcare, the jobs, the houses, the research assist, like, so then when you get into the professional world and you get into academia, you're like, if I can navigate food stamps, I can navigate an econ course. Like no thing anyone's <laughs> going to tell me is going to, you know, because if you haven't stood with your kid in line for Wix, you know, at that time stamps, you know, like yes. for hours, then don't come to me. Sorry, like bitching about like tenure because like none of it matters, you know, uh, so I would say like wrapping up, I think like the cornerstone of my whole journey has been a real faith journey. I think that, you know, I didn't grow up in a very religious household. There was like a lot of hurt, like church hurt in my household. And it wasn't until I was older that I really came into faith as a foundation. And I think like that's not from a proselytizing perspective, but just trying to live with expectation and grace for myself and for others. Uh, helps me like get through the day, you know? Uh, and I think I'm finally old enough and mature enough at my age to admit that I, I don't know what's going to happen in 2020 is just testament to all your best laid plans going to crap. Uh, but whatever happens is going to be good. Like it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next year, but like something's going to be good. And that's like really how I'm trying to live right now based on everywhere I've been before this. So all the jobs will come up at some point during this podcast. So I won't even get into all that. I'll try to anonymize all that. It's funny, Dr. Martin, that you and I are kindred spirits in um in in a in a way, you know, in as much that I too am the first in my family to go to college and I only applied to one. <laughs> and, and that so happened to and I didn't apply to any state schools either. Um, you know, my father was like, hey, what are you going to do when you graduate from high school? And um, my father worked at a warehouse and my mother was a secretary. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I can remember that conversation so vividly in as much that I was like, you're going to pay for me to go to college. Uh, I was living, I have been watching too much of the Cosby's. Yep. Um, yeah. and, and that, that, oh. and ironically enough, in my freshman class was Bill Cosby's son. Oh my, my father dropped me off. My father dropped me off to college 
and and I'm saying, where are you going? And he was like, uh, man, I got to go back to work. And I'm like, you're not staying? He was like, I got to go back to work. Handle your business and don't come home. And, <laughs> And, oh that was, and, and, and that was the first time um, as a leader, I began to cry. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> really you funny. know, that dropped me off on the corner and, he, and I started to cry and I cried real tears um, mm. as I saw my father head back to Jacksonville while leaving me on the corner of Fair Street and Abernathy um, in Atlanta, oh Georgia to handle <laughs> my business at college. That's, that's hysterical. All right. Well, then all three of us are kindred spirits because I too was born in poverty. I too had wick. I was thrown out of the house when I was 17 because I was in love with a black man. I too only applied to one college. And, uh, and then here we are, we're all doctors. We all have our path. We all have our stories. Absolutely. And, uh, Amazing. It's just so great. It's so great. Wow. This is going to be a wonderful conversation. And so, you know, I, I wrote down some of this because as the two of you were telling your stories, I was capturing the synergy between the two of you in different ways. You were doing community organizing, one political and one very mm -hmm. much community organizing in the truest sense of social determinants of health, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then the two of you, because of that work, you were also influencers. I want to have a conversation about when did you know, that's all mm -hmm. leadership qualities, right? So when did you know, when did you say to yourself, hey, I, I can do this leader. When did you know it was leadership, first of all? Because a lot of people don't realize that that's what they're doing. So when did you know you were leading and when did you know that you actually kind of liked it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, for me, I knew that um, I was the leader when those that I were, that I was looking to, to be leaders were looking at me for an answer. And those that I had held with such high esteem we're not in the front of the decision-making process. And so, you know, I think for me, my learned experience of navigating challenged communities because I grew up in one um, informed all of the things that I knew from a policy standpoint, from a programmatic standpoint would work because those were the things that I needed as someone who was closest to the issue. And I think for me, that, that, that gave me my voice. You know, I knew from the standpoint, you couldn't say you were going to have a jobs program and then not have jobs to offer the people. And so when I walked into the building, I was like, we're not going to do that because the first thing that's going to happen is they're not going to let their children, who ultimately we want to participate as part of this process, participate because we haven't given them the jobs that we promised. And that for me wasn't an aha moment. It was an aha moment to the people that I was reporting to. But again, when I looked at them and they didn't have an answer and my lived experiences was informing everything that we were doing, I knew right then, oh, I'm the leader. And I think the second part of this for me um, came when my lived experience allowed me to stand in front of a room and tell my story and, my, and not tell my story from a victimhood standpoint. I knew then I was, in a, then I was the leader and also... Um, I have found my calling in terms of work. 
So much of what we do relative to work becomes just I get up, I go, I come back home and I go the next day and I get a check every other Friday for doing it. For me, when I found my voice, not only did I find my voice, I found my you know, career and in finding my career, I was committed to being the best and the brightest in the room relative to what I was doing. And that still holds true to the day. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Uh, the first memory that popped in my head, I grew up in apartment complexes. So those of you who have grown up in apartment complexes, you know, the kids are often just like left to do whatever. Like they're just like, you know, like just go out and then come back when all the lights are on. When the um, lights come on. Yeah. yeah. And in, I grew up in, yeah, I grew up in uh, Orange County. So these massive apartment complexes, they all look alike. Uh, California, Orange County, California. Sorry, you're Floridian. So like not that Orange County, the other Orange County. Uh, and they'd have these giant um, transformer boxes, like like green boxes. And I remember it was always my job to put on the choreography show for like the parents when they came home from work. Like, and I just remember having my little like tape recorder thing, Paula Abdul choreographing and like bossing everybody around and being like, getting costumes and getting the thing. And I, which is such an early memory of like change management, right? It's like, you have all these kids from all these different backgrounds and all these different races and all this, like, and you're trying to get them all to do this dumb Paula Abdul opposite the track choreography. You've been working <laughs> on it all day. And that it's so funny. Cause then the second memory was something, it's almost like I'm looking for external validation. This is a vulnerable moment is that I'm something I'm working on. It's not seeking validation of others so much it's almost like that reflects back to you what you should have known about yourself all the time and I remember sitting in a big conference room with the city manager so it my previous job I worked for the city I was deputy director at uh, the health department and I remember being in a meeting with all the department directors and they're all sitting around one of those big conference tables and all of us secondaries are sitting around the edge you know and women are often like sitting on the edge and like on a bench you wouldn't take an open seat because it's supposed to be for a department director so I'm sitting there behind the city manager and they're talking about something and he turns to me and he's like, Sarah, what do you think? And out of nowhere, and he's just like, how much money would it take to renovate 10,000 homes? And I'm like, uh, and I'm like doing the math in my head and I give him a number. He turns back around next subject matter. He turns around, Sarah, what, what do you think we should do? And I'm just like, he keeps why does he keep addressing me? Like, why does he keep asking me? I'm not, I don't have the formal title. I don't, I'm not sitting at the table. I'm literally not at the table. I mean, that's just a saying, but I was like perched on a tiny bench behind him. And that's something that clicked. It was like, there's something he wants to know. There's something he trusts about me that I'm not going to BS him. I'm going to tell him the truth. And like, I started to own that more, maybe much to the chagrin of people around me, like owning that privilege more. I don't think I did it correctly the whole time. I definitely think I overstepped or, and I wasn't humble enough, but like, it was that little bit of spark that was just like, I've got something to say. Like, you know, that, and it's, it really sucks that it took like a man 20 years, my senior in a position of power to like, give me that, but isn't that his responsibility, right? Like mm -hmm. good for him, good for him to find the youngest woman in the room and to turn around and be like, what do you think? 
knowing my answer was going to be right anyway, right? Like I knew my math was right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I didn't doubt my math skills, right? Uh, but that's a scary moment, right? Because you're like, do I say this? Do I tell the truth? Do I, you know, like, uh, and, and I feel like that's one of those things that really sticks out. And I hope to be the type of leader who does that to others. You know, what a great model. Absolutely. That was, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. To me, when I think about that bravado type of authoritative, intimidating leadership style seems very old school, like vulnerability and, and, and being in, in, engaging your staff and all of that seems to be sort of that, a, a new way of leadership. Tell me about your experiences with that. What influences did you have and where did you see yourself as your career was evolving? How did you manage or how did you lead? I hate to be the first one to, to, to speak on this stuff all the time, but so, so, but I'll go. Um, so there's this, this social science term called negressence. And negressence is how do African-Americans navigate the space of work in a, um, in a white supremacist environment. And so for me, there was never room for me to have that level of bravado as it relates to leadership, because I'm always conscious of this hegemonic culture that we that we have where, you know, I walk in the room and oftentimes I'm the only African-American male. And so I have to, in, you know, sort of internalize everyone's opinion about African-American males. And so I'm always conscious and trying to read the room. Um, and, and so, you know, understanding all of that, understanding the science of negrescence, I'm always conscious of when I walk in the room, it's imperative that I read the room and read the tea leaves relative to how people see me. And yeah. so I don't get that space or I don't necessarily allow, my my, allow, allow myself the space to have a level of bravado. That bravado comes around the subject matter. And I'm going to give you subject matter that's so high and so informed that you can't dispute the information that I'm, I'm giving to you. So that will speak for itself. But I, I don't think as an African-American male, I, I'm, I've, you know, the, the world we live in, um, you know, as I came along and even at this point allows me that room, that, you know, that space to walk in a room with a level of arrogance. Um, you know, you know, I have to be conscious of what's happening out in the larger society and how they see me. And particularly now in this particular climate, it's very easy for you to be voted off the island without you even knowing that you were voted off the island. And so those, those things play heavy um, in terms of how I carry myself as a leader. Um, and they may not be important to anyone else, um, you know, who's not an African-American male, but I'm always trying to make sure I understand the space that I'm in, the room that I'm in, and how me just being in that space could spark a level of resentment on the part of others in that space. And yeah. so those things weigh really, really, really heavy on me because at the end of the day, if I'm, you know, when I walk into a room, whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person, the first thing you see is an African-American. And if you don't, if you've never had an experience with an African-American male and or your experience 
was negative, then I bear the weight of all of that. And so, again, I go back to the fact that, you know, when I'm walking to the room, I'm in computer mode. I'm looking, I'm finding, I'm trying to see who's there. And, you know, as I climb up the leadership ranks, it becomes fewer and fewer people that look like me. And those that do look like me, some of them are there trying to maintain their in-group status. So, you know, there's no level of connection there. And so, you know, those are all things that weigh really, really heavy on me as I walk into a room and trying to assess, you know, how do I um, impose my leadership capacity on the room? And most of the time, it's around information. So I want to I push on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were responding from a bravado perspective. Right. But now I want to talk to you about how do you show vulnerability then? Do you find yourself sometimes coming into that same room, not sure if you can be vulnerable as oh, an ab- African-American man? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, you know, it's funny when you when you um, sent me the title of today's podcast, I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm like, you're right. There is no crying. But sometimes I might cry <laughs> in my car. <laughs> I'm not crying in the room under no circumstances, again, because you know, to show that level of vulnerability, again, when you're the only person in the room or you're the, this is the first time you've been in the room. I mean, you know, that's amazing. In 2020, we're still dealing with first. And so when you walk into the room, you know, bravado, emotions, all of that have to be tabled because you don't know if you're going to get another, another opportunity to be in the room. And so all of those things play out right before me. And those are all things that I'm very conscious about as an African-American man when I walk into a room and, you know, I'm trying to assess where my leadership capacity um, plays a part in this whole process. Fascinating. Sarah, have you cried? Have you cried in meetings or in front of people? Uh, Once today. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I would can't say I ever did it before this job. Uh, I think I came into this job just like completely depleted of just honestly just being so tired of being so aware of my surroundings all the time that I could never do one misstep. Right. So like because you don't cry. I can't cry. Right. So so the the men are going to set the vulnerability expectation. Then the women are going to follow it. So if if the men in a corporate setting and the men in a leadership setting set the expectation of vulnerability, the women are going to try to be the men, right? We're not going to carve out our own space for vulnerability. No, I, uh, you know, I'm thinking of my previous job leading a team of like many, and I had a lot of people who reported to me and behind closed doors, I would be very vulnerable and I would cry often. I would say I probably edged more towards like the, uh, the inappropriate territory of being friends with my employees. Right. Like, and, and I think that that's a whole other thing that too much vulnerability, right. Too much openness, too much rawness. But uh, yeah, I hold, I've held, I feel like I've held it in for 19 years. Right. Or something just like, and, and I used to, when my, I had three kids under five in grad school and I go to target one, I'm worried I can't afford anything Two, I'm hoping no one, makes me look like a bad mom. And that tension of like, do not throw a tantrum. Everything's fine. I have my life together. I like, 
I am so good at acting like I have got it all together uh-huh. that you just come, you just completely lose it. Then at, when you get home in your car behind closed doors, whatever, this is what upsets me. This is what makes me feel like crying. I cried at my annual review three weeks ago out of frustration. And I've cried today out of happiness. I cry. I'm a crier. Like that's who I am. Like, and I hid it for so long and I just pushed it down. And I remember having an advisor, my dissertation advisor is a black man. And he was like, why don't you write about mother's issues, the economics of mothers? And I was like, because I don't want people to look at me and be like, oh, she does woman things and she does woman research. And he's like, I write about race because it's what I know and it's what gets me up in the morning is talking about these things. And if you don't care about what you're doing, then you might as well not do it at all. You might as well just go work as a consultant and make a ton of money. Like, why are you even doing research if it's not something you care about? And that has stuck with me for a long time. So I've had young women in my company say that they wanted this job because they saw me cry in their job interview, just talking about our customers and what we do. Like, like, so I'm trying to like reset expectations, but it's really hard. So that's interesting. So hold on for a second. So you're saying that in an interview, you cried in an interview and I got teary eyed. I got you. I got you. I got you. But that applicant saw that, saw that as a good thing. Yeah. I mean, because she saw it as this woman who is in leadership in this organization obviously cares about the work she is doing. Uh Now, I'm not saying that's the way it is everywhere. So my I was a professor. I was a tenure track professor out of my Ph.D. My first semester batch of evaluations were the harshest thing I've ever read. She should not wear skirts because it is inappropriate. She should not wear jeans. She should not talk about her children. It is unprofessional. You know, like, whereas my male colleague was getting, I love when he talks about his kids. I love when he talks about his life. It's so cute and so vulnerable. And like, they wanted that. And what they wanted from me was nurturing. They wanted a mom. They wanted a girlfriend. They wanted a sister. They wanted all of it in me. And there was, I could not please anybody. So I think with this job, when I came in, I was like, F it. That you're getting 100% this, right? No, I had leverage. That's different. And a, a young woman of color, like I'm half Mexican, nobody knows it. But, you know, if I get a young black woman who comes into my organization, she's not going to come in with that same privilege to be like, she can be like me because that's just not the reality of the situation. The expectations placed on her culturally are totally different. And we not we might not be the space that she feels comfortable in, you know? Yeah an interesting perspective of, from a woman of feeling like you had to have a certain, uh, that you had to navigate a certain culture based on how it was set up by your male bosses. Um, I never really thought about it like that. And and well, then we just keep perpetuating it. So, you know, I don't, it's either I have to be like, uh, what is that? Devil wears Prada, right? Like I have to be that female boss archetype that like, Where's the stiletto? I love wearing heels. I love dressing up for work. I like fierce and like takes no prisoners and like, like eighties shoulder pads. And like, that's that one archetype. Right. Um, and then it's like, there's nothing in between. There's, it's like either you're a pushover or 
Yeah. You're not, you know, you're, you're Meryl Streep. Right. And we don't have any in between, especially in politics and my eyes towards, you know, the campaign trail one day. Don't I'm like, what does it look like when a woman cries on the podium, you know, like, like, and cares about something. Yeah. But I, I, you know, it's funny, but the, the, the same thing applies for me. I mean, the model for how I need to act and conduct myself is not based upon, you know, an African-American male. It's Absolutely. based upon, you know, a white male, you know, perspective. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, you will find yourself contorting to what that standard is. And that may not take into account any of the cultural background that you have. I mean, you know, absolutely. so, so again, you're trying to understand. And for me, I'm assessing the rules of the game, not only before I walk into the room, but I'm also assessing the rules of the game as you know I get an if when I if I'm going to an interview I'm I'm looking at who's in that room and what and I'm trying to glean from anyone what's their experience or what's their appetite for an African American male. Yep. Yep. Contorting is such a good word. Contorting yeah. is exactly the word and I'm not flexible. And so like I'm trying to be I'm trying to do more yoga but and I'll take it one step further and I'll say the expectations have been set by mediocre, median, average, white, cis, hetero men who are Protestant. Like, like that's that, that median. I mean, you really got those categories. If you don't hit it, then we're different, right? And different can be good. It can play well, right? But different can be really hard to counteract. And it's a constant elevation of our awareness of our surroundings. It's like walking to your car, Dawn, you know, like walking to your car at night, like where are your keys in between your yes. fingers in case you get SVU'd or something out of like the bushes, right? Like that all the time. How much can our bodies take of that elevated awareness all the time? It's not good for us and our health, mental and physical. It's an interesting piece here. You know, I think about just my own recent experiences. You know, I would say that more women have been more critical of my vulnerability than men. Absolutely. 100. That there is a, you better not show them any weakness. Ruin this for us. It's true. (laughs) And I just was so shocked by that. I think that there's, for me personally, I've always thought that there's, I don't think that there's anything wrong with showing vulnerability. I think that there's an appropriate time and place for it. If you do it all the time, if it's a routine thing for you, then it, it creates a, a really interesting culture. But for me personally, I just, I always think it's really interesting when more women in leadership, it feels to me, my experience has been that more women have been critical of being vulnerable than my male counterparts. You know, I had someone that um, commented on LinkedIn and one of the things that they said was, it was a, it was a male, a white male, um, they're middle management, and they have been trying really hard to kind of create this culture of a safe space and vulnerability and for people to make mistakes and to feel like they can make mistakes and not be you know, a punitive environment or walking on eggshells. But they happened to mention, and we were going back and forth a little bit in our comments, that it's tough for them to create that type of 
um, safe space or culture in their environment if they're not the head honcho. Because they might be able to create that space within their division. But if it's not from the top, if it doesn't start from the top, then there's not a consistent culture. And it's, it's hard to reinforce that. I'd like to see if you could comment on that a little bit. You know, I will say this, um, uh, Sarah, as it relates to me and my organization, I have a philosophical belief around my direct reports capacity to make mistakes. And it, it really falls on two things. Um, one, if you are making a mistake that in your head you thought was going to better the organization, or if you are making a mistake relative to the people that we serve. Because for mm -hmm. me, it's very clear that we serve an underserved population. And so if you're making a mistake with those two things in mind, I'm, I, I can tolerate it. You're fine with it. I'm, yeah. I'm cool with it. Regardless of yeah. what the overarching organization says, if you're making a mistake relative to the people we serve or you're making a mistake and in terms of how we can make the organization better and it doesn't work, then we can, we can I'm, I'm, man, consider that a wash. The one area of mistakes that I cannot and will not allow my people to make is if you make a mistake and it was going to solely benefit you, then I have zero room for mistakes in that capacity because you were being selfish. And mm -hmm. if you're being, you know, every day I wake up, I, I, I wake up with the understanding that we are here to make the world a better place, whether it's in the Y, whether it's in the success zone, whether it's wherever I may go next. My, when, I, when you hire me, you know that I am committed to the idea of moving humanity forward. And so if you're making mistakes along that route, then I can live with it. But if you are making mistakes that's solely going to make you look good, if it would have happened, mm -hmm. then guess what? You're going to be out the door so fast with me <laughs> that it's going to make your head spin. And those mm -hmm. other two areas, man, we are working for the greater good of humanity and making mistakes in that area. We're trying to do our best. And sometimes it doesn't work. So it doesn't matter what the larger organization says about it. We were trying to do the right thing by the organization and or by the people that we were tasked with serving within the organization. So I created within those re direct reports to me an atmosphere and an environment where we make mistakes all the time. Because when we, when we hit right on something that we're trying, it moves the organization forward and or it moves people out of those areas that can have an impact around them being alive or dead. So that's mm -hmm. kind of how mm -hmm. you can do it, whether or not, you know, it's, it's not a pervading part of the culture of the organization, but you can create an environment where mistakes are made and they don't have to cost people their job. As long as they're doing it for a greater good and that greater good is for people and or the, the larger organization, I can live with that. That's great. That's great. What about you, Sarah? What's that culture and environment that you like? Yeah, I think there's like, you know, the analogy people use about, I think leadership is when you're on an airplane, like, uh, and there's a bunch of turbulence and your first instinct is to look at the flight attendants to see if they look, do they look freaked out? 
uh, or when you happen to sit next to someone who's like work works for the airline, you know, and you're just like, does this look normal? I think that as a leader, you have an obligation to keep some sort of front that shows strength, that inspires high expectations, that role models what it looks like to work a little extra, to try a little harder. My pet peeve is complacency. My pet peeve is just like, oh, I'll get to it later. Like, I won't take the extra time to make this 100% excellent. Like, because I have a tendency deep down to be lazy, like to, to cut corners, to like hurry up. Like, so it's often your, your biggest flaws that you've worked really hard to counteract that triggers the, the biggest response in you. And so I have an obligation uh, to, to stand up. It was right before this, actually, like I was making a little soapbox speech to the entire company about this really amazing project. And I was getting vulnerable. I was saying how much it means to me. I was being strong and being optimistic, which is very hard in this time for, uh, you know, even private sector companies, but we serve the public sector and that, you know, it's been uh, a new era for us of figuring out how to make this all work. Even if I'm scared, even if I know what the numbers look like, even behind the scenes, I owe it to them to inspire confidence so they work as hard as possible. So, but when I'm with them and I'm talking about what I do, yeah, I'll get a little teary eyed. I will admit that I was, I rushed to judgment with my peers, right? So people who are lateral to me, I have to learn to apologize for being hot tempered or what stubborn or whatever that is. Right. But I also have an obligation to call out when I see that people are doing something that is either baked in this implicit bias or, you know, like perpetuating status quo or whatever. Like I have, you, you point out injustices, like small ones and big ones, like that's what you do. Right. But I also, that also means they won't listen if I haven't admitted when I have mm -hmm. been wrong or I have rushed to judgment. I also need to know when to let things go, you know, and like when to just be like, I'm not going to win this one. It's okay. You know, I'm very competitive. I like to win everything. Right. But like, sometimes it's just not going to go your way. Uh, I liked what you said about like, you know, when mistakes are okay, because I've always kind of said like, if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a fabulous <laughs> mistake. Like let's make a big mistake. Right. That's just like, we tried and we aimed and I'm thinking of like, you know, those mid-air shots of basketball players when they're about to make like an amazing slam dunk or something. And it's gorgeous. And you see every muscle and every piece of lighting is perfect. We don't know if they made the shot. We don't know if they actually even succeeded, but they looked really good yes. mid-air. Like, that's what I'm just like, we got to like go all out, fail spectacularly. <laughs> like, you know, and, and because all we were doing was trying to help others. And if we fail helping others, like you said, like, then we succeeded really because like, we'll learn and we'll grow That's and we'll right. be better. And, and like, at the end of the day, people want to know yeah. that you are trying, um, yes. you, know, I think, yes. you know, that's what people, particularly, um, when you are in a, um, you are a servant leader, they just want to know that you are trying to help, that you are not there, um, as part of some organization that's there to, you know, make money on, on their condition. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I try to tell people, cause I'm, I'm big into clinical trials and research and all of that stuff. I do some work 
um, outside of my everyday job at the Y around clinical trials. And what I you know, tell communities that I'm, I do that work in is that your condition is your currency. And so if it has to be a transactional relationship with these universities, then the reason why they're there is high blood pressure. What is the cost of your high blood pressure? And create a transactional environment in that way. But by and large, people want to give you the information. And what I would tell the university is people want to give you the information. They just want to know that you care. And if you care and you fail them in the process, it's okay. It's okay. You are there trying. But if you go in and look at them as purely research subjects, then my obligation to them is to commoditize your reason for being there. And so if you want to have a transaction relationship, this is what it's going to cost you. If you want to have a caring relationship, it won't cost you anything, but, you know, maybe feed them and treat them like you, you know, would want somebody to treat you if the role was on the, if the shoe was on the other foot. The reason I love doing these podcasts and the topics that we create is because there's not this one answer to any of it. I think that emerging leaders and aspiring leaders think that there's this textbook that they can read and then all of a sudden they can become a leader. And it, there's, it's so, there's all this gray. And I remember one of the things that a mentor told me ascending into my career is that if you're not able to sit in gray space for a long period of time, you're going to really struggle as a leader. It's not a black or white mm. situation. There is a ton of gray that you've got to be comfortable in, that you're never going to be able to complete that Rubik's Cube every single day. You don't think that there's a right or a mm -hmm. wrong. If you cry and you show vulnerability, there's nothing wrong with that. If you are high expectations, big time performance, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the experience of a leader of understanding your environment. Both of you talked about that walking into a room that you have to be able to come in and understand your environment and the experience that you bring in helps you to decide how vulnerable you need to be and how vulnerable you can't be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just part mm -hmm. of the experience and the lessons that we all learn as we grow in our leadership space. Great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with me um, and with with our listeners. So let's move on to the 30 second hot seat. The 30 second hot seats go, you know, rounds are basically, I'm going to read off some prompts and I'm going to ask you to respond to them with three words or less. That's round one. And we'll do it very quickly. Um, it's kind of fun. And I want you to, you know, you, this is the time where my guests are going to be very authentic and fun and serious all at the same time. Round two of this is that I'm going to take note of all of your responses in round one, and I'm going to come back and ask you to elaborate a little bit on why you answered it that way. Let me tell you what those prompts are first. The good, the bad, the funny, the ugly, the worst, the best, the kick ass, the lesson, the redemption, the cry, and the embarrassing. All right. The 30-second hot seat starts right now. The good. Pivoting. Um, Newtown. The bad. The petition. Um, AT&T. The funny. <laughs> bolo tie. Did you say bolo tie? 
No, bolo tie. Bolo tie, like the <laughs> cowboy wears. Um, the bad. Um, I think you're on the oh, funny. The funny. Um, the funny senior citizens. <laughs> the ugly. Senate confirmation. Losing. Mm, good one. The worst. Uh, COVID birthday. COVID birthday. Okay. Um, I'm going to say COVID as well. Okay. <laughs> COVID has come up on every single po podcast. The best. Uh, democratizing data. The um, reducing people to data. The kick ass. Sweat and swagger. Kick ass was um, porch to porch health assessment. He is breaking the rules. Just FYI, you told us three <laughs> words and I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, we can say health assessment. There we go. Health assessment. That's so funny. That's so funny. All right. The lesson. Uh, disruption. The why. The redemption. Cuba. Um, Dr. Cohen. Ah, the cry. The whistleblower. COVID. <laughs> if it comes up again. The embarrassing. Uh, jail time. Oh, God. Uh, jail time. <laughs> Let me just say, I had a lot of these responses circled, but I can't help myself but to come back to both of you with the answers that you just gave for embarrassing. Pedro, you said, you said jail time, and Sarah, you said jail time. Were you guys locked up together? Uh, no. <laughs> it's actually not, it's not my jail time, actually. So, yeah. You know, and, and so as a matter of vulnerability um, within this whole entire process, um, you know, I am a product of a challenged neighborhood that's overly policed. And jail or having some interaction with law enforcement is just part of the environment, whether good, bad, or otherwise. Um, when you grow up in a heavily police community, and I'm, you know, this is no indictment on police. I mean, you know, they're there to do a job. And, you know, that's embarrassing when you have to call your parent and say, hey, or call somebody and say, hey, uh, I've been arrested. I mean, there's nothing more embarrassing than that. And particularly for young black males, that becomes a part of their life experience when you grow up in an urban neighborhood. And that's unfortunate. Um, you know, and 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 for some, that that experience in those neighborhoods becomes the badge that doesn't allow them to be great. And um, nobody, you know, we that, you know, there's research out there that talks about you have to have 20 years if you are a poor kid growing up in those types of neighborhoods of being perfect, just mm -hmm. absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't perfect. And if, you know, I'm at that point where my work has been my redemption song. And, it, and I'm not talking about somebody who went to jail for anything bad. I mean, I'm talking about a guy who wrote a check for his college tuition. That, you know, and if you, you guys could probably relate, if you grew up depending on financial aid and register, your, your financial aid check didn't hit before yep. that check 
that you had to write. So, so you're, yeah. you're you're writing that check because this is the last day to pay tuition, and you're like you 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 write that check and it doesn't clear, but that became a part of my story if I wanted to go to college. But you know when I look at you know my you know my history, that's a part of my history, and so you know that's embarrassing. They don't even arrest you for that anymore, to be quite honest. But nonetheless, you know. It's something that still sticks in my head as embarrassment that, you know, I had to make that call as being, you know, the first in my family to go to college and you arrested for writing a bad check. So that's why I say it's embarrassing. Well, I, I, it's you said it right before you started telling your story, but that's just a perfect connection to the topic of you sharing that and feeling, you know, and showing some vulnerability to share that story. And so thank, thank you for that. Ah, no worries. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to actually, Sarah, I'm going to ask you to explain Sweat and Swagger. Oh, my jail time story okay, was well, so much better. Do the jail, then do the jail. Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. So that's fine. It, it would have that, that was so inspirational. What he just said, I was just like, oh, I started running. <laughs> Uh, I actually like from, so, so there was like a little bit of a lesson there. Um, I think in that just my recent COVID journey of just like mental health, uh, like picked up a book on training for a marathon, something I never thought I'd do. Right. Never thought I'd write a dissertation. Never thought I would, you know, fall in love one day after divorce. Never thought I would, you know, all these things you never thought you'd do. And, and picked up this book and, and sweat and swagger is like on the front of the book. Um, it's called shut up and run, which I loved. Never thought I'd be a runner. And, uh, and now I am, and now I'm signed up for marathons. And I remember talking to my daughter, children are so innocent in the things they say. And I remember telling her, I can't break this pace. I can't break this pace. (laughs) Something is like wrong with the world, something. And she's like, well, maybe you're not trying hard enough. And I just, I just thought like, maybe you're right. Like maybe I'm just not trying hard enough. Um, I do, I do want to like recognize that vulnerability around the jail time. I think that was really brave of you. And I feel like uh, it shouldn't be brave. Like it shouldn't rise to the level of braveness to be vulnerable. And I think that's a real takeaway. And it was a gift given to me, I think, in graduate school, my jail time story was actually about a very close family member. Uh, I got a bougie, like, interview at a preschool. You know, in Berkeley, it's like, you know, like, apply to preschool. I didn't have the money, but they had a limited number of subsidized slots. So I'm like, I'm going to look like the most with it poor person that's ever walked in this place, you know. And I get all these phone calls from my sister, you know, during this interview. And she texts me. She's like, you have to call me. And I had a family member who got arrested for possession of methamphetamines uh, in my hometown, was put in jail, uh, was shoplifting. And I was supposed to go to some, you know, gala dinner with my boss, who was the secretary of labor under Clinton. Like, I'm like moving in these circles, right, that I never thought I'd be in some working class kid from the Central Valley and I walk into one of my advisor's offices and he's intimidating. 
I'm going to name him. His name is Jesse Rothstein. He's an economist. His dad is Richard Rothstein, wrote like Color of Law. Like he's like a really smart guy. Very intimidating. I walk into his office and I just lose it. I've never cried in front of him. I've never, I always feel stupid. I always feel poor. I always feel like I'm feeling all of these things and I'm bawling and I tell him what happened and the freedom to say your truth of your family, of your background is just like, yes, the most freeing thing. And he looked at me and he said, this is not your shame. Mm. Like, and even if you did do this, if you were the one doing it, like it's still not shame and you can't carry shame. Mm. So stop crying and like get to work. Mm. Like, how are you going to make sure you're different? Like, how are you going to make sure your kids' lives are different? Like, what are you going to do today? Like, but just that, like, it's not your shame yeah. to carry yeah. from an economist. <laughs> and you know, economists, they're not normally the most socially adept people like to talk to about your feelings. I remember just being so embarrassed to cry, but it felt so good to cry in front of someone who like you respected and still respected you after you were a blubbering mess, you know? <laughs> uh, I could talk another hour with the two of you on this, but we don't have another hour. What are some departing words or some advice or guidance that you, that you'd like to share with folks? You know, what, how can people follow you? I, I think my parting advice is like, I didn't get far not being myself. I didn't get far in the spaces I wanted to get by pretending to be someone I wasn't. And it wasn't till I was myself. Okay. All of the things are myself. Me acting like I have it all together. That's me. Me being vulnerable. That's me. You live in the tension. You live in the gray. You live in the complexity of people and like you're golden, right? But people are craving humanity especially in their leaders. And I'm going to say elected officials, they are hungry for someone who can connect with them and knows what they're feeling or at least tries. Right. So these days of these wooden politicians who like, you know, went to their prep schools, went to their Ivy leagues, it's done. Like we're, we're saying that's done. It's over and we're going to do something different. And there is no, again, mm -hmm. it, there's no shame in that. No matter what it was, there is no shame in it and you can't carry it. And like, be funny, be silly. Like, you know, be, of course, be appropriate. I'm saying like that, but open yourself up because you have a lot to give. And I think that would be what anyone would notice. Sometimes I have to pull it back a little bit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am a handful away from 1500 followers. So I'm really pleased about that. And I didn't go get a bot to get them for me. I'm organically growing it. So uh, I'm at Dr. Sarah Marie. It's the same on medium, which is where I write a lot of feelings about work and otherwise, and try to do more of that. So uh, follow me on there. And that's my social. I'm not, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, but you will not be impressed. So let's just stick to Twitter and medium. Yes. Very good. Thank you. Pedro? So I think at the end of the day, I have to agree with Sarah relative to people wanting authentic leadership. But for me in particular, and, you know, I would probably say that, you know, I'm what I'm, I'm probably symbi um, symbolic of most African-American males in leadership is, um, although they won't Authentic leadership, I think understanding the rules of the road are still so 
very, very important. And not understanding the rules, the rules of the road can lead to your you being blown up. And you know, being blown up, particularly as an African American male, comes with some consequences. So I don't I don't want that to be lost on this process. The second thing that I I again Sarah said so much of what I would say is that there is humanity in all of this. Um, you know, we have become so reliant upon technology um, and data is a portion of technology that we have lost the humanity in the data. You know, we make data driven decisions and forget about the people who have to live with the consequences of your data driven decision making. And so I, I don't think as leaders we get to do that. Um, you know, I want to say that when I show up in the marketplace, I show up with a level of compassion who has humanized the process of moving humanity forward. And so, you know, that's kind of what I would tell aspiring leaders to do. Never let the data make you lose track of humanity. Um, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, a bot is just a bot there is a human being on the other side of that. And we don't want to get to that point where we don't see the human being. Um, and again, you know, that authenticity part of that allows you to not become a robot. Um, and, you know, so, so I would say those would be the things that I would leave people with. Um, I'm, you know, you can follow me on all of the formats, um, Irvin Pedro Cohen is Twitter, um, LinkedIn, um, um, Facebook, all of that. Um, if you want to read some of my musings, um, and I wrote all my musings to kind of limit it to 500 words, <laughs> fair bout. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, you can go on, um, you know, Google Urban Pedro, Urban Pedro Coin, and the, my blogs will pop up. Um, that's where I am. I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about me on any of these social media platforms. I kind of keep it to the work that I'm doing, um, you know, just because, you know, that's just kind of where I am in my life. Um, but that's where I am. And again, Don, I want to thank you for having me on your show today. I mean, uh, you know, this is way cool and it's way cool to see you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Um, and Sarah, it's nice to meet you. And if I could ever be a service to you, by all means, please let me know. Same. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, this has been great uh, having this conversation with you. Again, like I said, we could, we could continue to do this for another hour or two. This concludes this week's episode of Leadership Uncensored. It was a great conversation with Dr. Cohen and Dr. Martin. Be sure to tune in next week for a very special edition of Leadership Uncensored as I welcome three wonderful guests my children, Natasha, R.C., and Dylan. Together, we're going to explore motherhood, children, and leadership. And we're going to have a very uncensored conversation about all of that. Thank you so much and be safe.